Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 2. We all float down here. Or, Why I Hate Clowns. Stephen King's It. Second episode of Pop Culture Affidavit, a monthly look at something completely random in popular culture. My name is Tom Panneris, and this time around I'm going to be taking a look at Stephen King's It. Before I get to both the novel and the 1990 TV movie, I want to go through some news and notes. First off, uh, thanks to everyone who downloaded and listened to the first episode. It took a little while to get it noticed, mainly because I had a brain fart and completely forgot to send the feed to iTunes. So it took the better part of a couple of weeks to get up there, but I really enjoyed putting it together, and I have to say I've already gotten a nice list of possible topics for future episodes, which is a really nice thing about covering random crap. There's a lot to choose from. Speaking of which, if you head on over to the blog, popcultureaffidavit.com, not only will you see show notes for this podcast, which will include some photos, graphics, and videos, but other entries. Sadly, I haven't posted much beyond a couple of episodes of Taking Flight, which is my podcast about Robin and Nightwing. And I've been so swamped at work lately that I'm going to be doing bi-weekly entries for the next month or two until I can finally get into a rhythm. But I did get two entries posted up there. The first is a tale of disappointment in the toy aisle, featuring the minor Transformers character named Huffer. The second is a painstaking look at a Coke commercial from 1982. Uh, After this airs, like I said... I'll probably actually be able to get myself more on a regular schedule uh, that's closer to what I was originally doing, which is a post every week, and uh, this particular podcast coming in around the end of of every month. And uh, I'm definitely looking to get back into that rhythm before the holidays, because I always love doing stuff about the holidays. Uh, One last thing before I get on to the topic at hand. Uh, if you enjoyed the intro music uh, and the music that you'll hear in, in the closing, the the song is called Lawnmower. The band is called City of Treason. They're out of Florida. If you like the music, I really suggest you go check them out and download it. The, uh, one of the guys in the band is a very, very uh, old and good friend of mine from back when we were uh, kids, Chris Samella, and uh, I love any opportunity I can to help uh, to help support him and... and uh, it really enjoys music. So, City of Treason, you can find them on iTunes, you can find them on Amazon. Uh, go ahead and, and go out, download their EP, check out their video, uh, and and enjoy. The topic for tonight's episode is It, a novel by Stephen King that was published in 1986 and then made into a three-hour television movie in 1990. I'm going to be spending time talking about the novel's background, give a synopsis uh, wherein I do my best to stay a little spoiler-free, 
and discuss my personal history with the novel before going into a review of the television movie. So like I said, it came out in 1986. Uh, I was about nine years old at the time. But according to Stephen King, uh, actually the idea for it came about as far back as uh, 1978, which was a few years into his initial success with novels like Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, uh, which all came about in the mid-70s. The Stand came out right around 1978, and uh, as he tells it on his website, it was around this time he was living in Boulder, Colorado. And one day, while his family was driving home from lunch at a pizza place, their brand new AMC Matador dropped its transmission. Literally, by the way, he says the transmission actually fell out of the car on the street. Anyway, he took it to the dealership, and when it was ready, they called him. I guess it's nice to know that writers have car trouble, because my car has had so much crap done to it, I feel like I'm driving the Millennium Falcon at sometimes, even though my car is nowhere near as cool as the Falcon. Yeah, but anyway, they call him as, as mechanics do. So he decided, instead of getting a ride to the dealership, to walk there, even though it was like three, three miles or so. I guess walks do you good. <laughs> uh, on his way to the dealership, King walked over a wooden bridge spanning a stream, and as he puts it, by that time he was very aware of how alone he was as well as the sound that his boots were making as he went over the bridge. It made him think of the old kid's story, The Fe- Three Billy Goats Gruff, which is about a troll living under a bridge that tries to eat the goats that cross, and he thought that telling a story about a real troll under a real bridge would make for a good book. It also made him think of a line from a poem which he thought went real trolls in imaginary gardens, and he was actually mistaken. The line is, imaginary gardens with real toads in them, and it's from Marianne Moore's poem, Poetry, which goes like this. I, too, dislike it. There are things that are important beyond all this fiddle. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, the place for the genuine. Hands that can grasp, eyes that can dilate, hair that can rise if it must. These things are important not because a high-sounding interpretation can be put upon them, but because they are useful. When they become so derivative as to become unintelligible, the same thing may be said for all of us, that we do not admire what we cannot understand, the bat holding on upside down, or in quest of something to eat, elephants pushing, a wild horse taking a roll, a tireless wolf under a tree, the immovable critic twitching his skin like a horse that feels a flea, the baseball fan, the statistician, nor is it valid to discriminate against business documents and school books. All these phenomena are important. One must make a distinction, however. When dragged into prominence by half-poets, the result is not poetry, nor till the poets among us can be literalists of the imagination, above insolence and triviality can present, for inspection, imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Shall we have it? In the meantime, if you demand, on the one hand, the raw material of poetry and all its rawness and that which is, on the other hand, genuine, you are interested in poetry. A poem, by the way, I, I like I said, I read and I actually looked up specifically for this podcast and, and liked so much I might actually even use it in my, in my English classes. So, there you go. Back to King. Like I said, he did misinterpret Moore's line, uh, and I do have to say, though, I do appreciate any, that any moment of inspiration can bring about a, a memory, however, however skewed, of a poem. 
At the moment, however, the idea he had some kind of went to sleep because he went on to write The Dead Zone, Firestarter, Cujo, Pet Cemetery, and Christine, among uh, a couple other things, which is a pretty solid output for a few years. Uh, granted, this is also where he admits to picking up a pretty heavy substance abuse problem to the point where he barely remembers actually writing Cujo. Uh, this is something he details very well in, in his memoir on writing, uh, a book that I think just about every aspiring writer really should read. Tremendous book. Not much mention of it. I, I skimmed through it the other night and, and really didn't find anything. But uh, the story he tells, uh, he tells through his an essay on his website. The idea of a troll under the bridge was kind of always in the back of his mind as he's writing these other books, and, and eventually he just kind of felt that it had to get out, that it was an idea that he couldn't keep locked up uh, for too much longer. So in 81, he began to flesh it out some more, starting with uh, the setting, which he used his uh, hometown of Bangor, Maine, which had a canal running through its center uh, that emptied into a larger river. And he says, as he says in his website, well, what's under a city? Tunnels. Sewers. Oh, what a great place for a troll. Trolls should live in sewers. They're a year past. The yo-yo stayed down at its end of its string, sleeping, and then it came back up. I started to remember Stratford, Connecticut, where I lived for a time as a kid. In Stratford, there was a library where the adult section and the children's section was connected by a short corridor. I decided that corridor was also a bridge, one across which every goat of a child must risk trip-trapping to become an adult. About six months later, I thought of how such a story might be cast, how it might be possible to create a ricochet effect, interweaving the stories of children and the adults they become. Sometime in the summer of 1981, I realized that I had to write about the troll under the bridge or leave him it forever. It took four years to complete, and upon its release in 1986 was a huge success, being one of the best-selling novels of the year. Uh, my parents got their copy in hardcover, although for some reason it had that clear plastic protective thing you see on like hardcover books you get out of the library. Uh, I'm pretty sure that one or both of them read it when it came out, because this was during a period when they and my aunts, my uncles, and, and friends of theirs would read uh, just about anything that King was, was writing, uh, evidenced by the fact that by the time I picked up the book to read myself in 91... They had hardcover copies of Pet Cemetery, Cujo, Christine, Misery, The Tommyknockers. I, there were probably a couple of other ones. Um, and, and, of course, they had It. It's not far-fetched, though. This is the 80s, and everybody was reading Stephen King in the 80s. I mean, I think the only thing I can compare it to of that time that they might have been reading as well were... Uh, I know my mom was reading some Danielle Steele, because that was kind of her big heyday, and uh, I remember uh, uh, them getting into the the uh, the Clan of the Cave Bear series, or the, the series of, of caveman books that begins with Clan of the Cave Bear. Not something I ever got into, but um, but I remember those being big back in the maybe the early to mid-1980s. At the time, I was a voracious reader, and quite frankly, I still am, judging by the pile of books on my dresser and unread books on my Kindle. Uh, to me, back in the 1980s and early 1990s, when I was, uh, late 1980s and early 1990s, when I was in junior high school, uh, reading a Stephen King novel represented reading a grown-up book, for lack of a better word. In elementary school, I, I'd read my fair share of Beverly Cleary, because for some reason, I was a completist when it came to the Ramona Quimby books. 
don't ask. It was just like I read Ramona and her father, and it was like, okay, well, I'm going to read them all, which totally makes sense of me being a comics fan and having every Teen Titans book up to a point, and I'm not going to get into it. There's a whole other podcast for that. Um, anyway, so I read some Cleary. I read, I read some Roald Dahl, James and the Giant Peach, the BFG. I remember the BFG being one of my favorites. And uh, had quite a number of the Hardy Boys books. Uh, by junior high, though, I'd graduated. Well, I graduated from elementary school, but I graduated from stuff that was a little too stuff that was a little more above the level of, of the Hardy Boys and some of the stuff I've been reading. Um, I did get into comics around that time, uh, but as far as the prose that I was reading, mainly Star Trek novels, the ones that were published by, I believe, Pocket Books, and then when the Timothy Zahn trilogy hit for the Star Wars and jump-started the Star Wars Expanded Universe, uh, I was on board for a lot of the beginning of that. Um, kind of fell off as the years went on, and, and more and more books came out. And um, another one that I remember really being into, and, and reading all the way to its conclusion, even though it was hard to hunt down the last couple, uh, was the Robotech novelization. Uh, something that I actually wrote about in one of the very first entries on my blog way back uh, a couple of years ago about how um, I saw that book series in what was then called the Bassett Bookstore and eventually became Borders in Sayville in 92 or 93 and uh, bought like the first couple because they were only like five bucks a piece and then eventually read all the 12 and then the sentinels and then eventually end of the circle and um anyway if you're interested in in reading about that the jack mckinney robotech novels uh, go check that entry out uh in somewhere kind of the deep recesses of the blog (laughs) um but what i didn't get during my tween years it's what they refer to them today although they didn't recall us tweens back then was the young adult fiction it existed, but YA wasn't the juggernaut in publishing as it is today. You know, I walk into my, I, I teach high school, I walk into my library at work, and there's YA stuff all on shelves and all on display and stuff, and you're kind of getting these kids to read, and, and some of it is actually pretty good. I've read a few things here and there, and some of it's utter crap, uh, which is pretty much to go for any genre of, of literature. Uh, you walk into Barnes & Noble, and there's good and there's then there's crap but back in like the late 80s and the early 90s ya was sweet valley high which is what a lot of the girls i went to school with were reading and the standard fair adventure books for boys the call of the wilds by jack london the red badge of courage johnny tremaine never read the red badge of courage got about halfway through johnny tremaine and quit and watched that disney movie where he the only thing I remember is him like fusing his fingers together or something. Uh, the Call of the Wild I do remember enjoying. Jack London is a, is a very was a very very good writer, but that was about it. I mean, we were we were a few years off from Harry Potter, and at least a good decade or two from Twilight or uh, The Hunger Games. So, being somebody who liked to read, and and I was reading comic books, I did go the sci-fi paperback route. Uh, I checked out well-worn paperbacks that were buried deep in the lower level of the Sable Public Library. And every once in a while, I looked at something my parents had read, which is where I did pick up my first Stephen King novel, which was The Eyes of the Dragon. A book that is more fantasy than it is horror, and it seems like it is aimed at a younger audience. Uh, but it was absolutely amazing, and it's something that I intend to reread and actually post about at some point in the future. It 
was a book that always looked like it was going to be like an accomplishment to read. It's longer than a thousand pages, which at the time I'd never read anything that large. And the title, written in two huge red capital letters on the spine, stood out from the shelves of my parents' secretary. I was fascinated by it. I wanted to know what it was about, whether or not it was good, and what it in the title was. So I asked my mom. It is evil, she told me ominously. An answer that left me more confused than anything, to be honest. But I was nevertheless intrigued. And in November of 1990, uh, I got even more intrigued because the TV movie premiered on ABC. Now, I was not allowed to stay up and watch it because even though I was uh, in the 8th grade, I actually still had a bedtime. I know, it's child abuse. But I did have a VCR, I did set it to tape, and my friends and I were able to watch it. That prompted me to pick up the book, which I read in the summer of 91, between my 8th and ninth grade years. A very significant leap at that point in my life, because I would end up moving up to high school with the ninth grade. And I actually was not the only person I knew reading the book. I remember a couple of people, including my friend uh, Chris, uh, reading it, and uh, I remember my friend Tom... (laughs) flipping through it uh, to find some of the really dirty language, especially a rant that includes several uses of the C word. But, you know, I wasn't just there for the dirty parts. Um, I wanted to read the whole thing, and I have to say that getting through it, yeah, it did feel like an accomplishment. Uh, By the time I finished the book, I felt like I had unlocked some sort of achievement level in a way, you know, because I'd read the book for grown-ups. In fact... I remember having it at a family function once because I was like midway through it and, and, you know, I'd get bored off my ass at my grandmother's so I'd usually bring something to read and, you know, because my cousins were running around and annoying the hell out of me. And my Aunt Jerry noticed that I was uh, reading it and she's like, oh, well, you know, she made a comment that seemed like approval and it kind of made me feel all mature, you know. It was like she was one of those relatives that were always passing books around and stuff. And it was like, I remember kind of looking at that like, I want to be part of that. And it made me feel a little more adult than being 14. After I finished it, I moved on. I went back to my stars, both Trek and Wars. Picked up other books here and there. Came back to King with the Dark Tower books, which I did stay all the way until their uh, story. And um, I did not pick up the more recent one, which was quote-unquote book eight. But the last one I read was the Dark Tower. Uh, A series I really enjoyed, by the way. Uh, and I do intend to go back and read some of his classics. Um, I have read Carrie. Have actually not read Salem's Lot, The Shining, or The Dead Zone. I think those are the next three that I might read of his uh, because they've interested me. But this book, however, a watershed moment in my reading career. Now, the novel itself begins with two deaths. One is in late 1957, and the other one is in 1984. Uh, they set the tone... And they also kind of set the pace. King tells the story of a group of seven friends who team up to defeat an unspeakable evil. The first death is one of the most significant. Uh, It's that of Georgie Denborough, the little brother of Bill Denborough, who is more or less the leader of this group of friends, these main characters. Bill's home, sick one day with the flu and Georgie, Ever the typical annoying little brother, he asks him to help him make a paper boat and that he'll sail down a rain-filled street in their hometown of uh, Derry, Maine. Bill makes the boat. George sails it. And then 
He gets disappointed because he watches it sail into a storm drain. So he peers down in the drain to get it, and a clown pops up. It's Pennywise, the dancing clown, who acts friendly towards the young boy, enticing him to reach into the sewer and get the boat, and kind of, you know, it, 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 the way King portrays it, it's like he almost kind of hypnotizes him into doing it in a way. You know, he takes advantage of the kid's innocence, uh, you know, because the, the kid says, I'm not supposed to talk to strangers, and, you know, logically you'd be like, it's pretty stupid to reach into a sewer to get something from a clown. But you could tell that there's something, immediately, there's something mystical about this this guy. So he reaches into the sewer to get the boat. And then Pennywise grabs him and he rips the kid's arm off. And it says that basically if he didn't die from the blood loss, he probably died essentially from the shock of what had happened. In 84, a group of locals beats up a gay man on the day of the town fair ultimately throwing him over a bridge and into the canal. During the interrogation of those who were involved in the murder, a couple of people mentioned seeing a clown and say that they never intended to kill the guy and they didn't think they did. It was this clown that did it. This and the disappearance of other people that are accompanied by this clown sighting here and there gets the attention of Derry's head librarian, Mike Hanlon. He then decides that he has to make phone calls to six people. Eddie Kasprick, who is now the owner of a Manhattan limousine business, Beverly Rogan, a fashion designer living out in, in the Midwest, Stan Uris, an accountant living in Atlanta, Richie Tozer, a popular L.A. DJ, man of many voices, Ben Hanscom, an architect, and Bill Denborough, who is now a successful novelist and screenwriter, married to a famous actress, and is temporarily living over in England because uh, one of his novels is being turned into a movie. The seven of them, back in the summer of 1958, were known as the Losers Club, mostly because they were the outcasts of their school. Eddie had asthma, was a bit of a hypochondriac, had this overprotective mother. Stan was ridiculed because he was Jewish. Mike was one of the very few black kids in mostly white dairy. Bev had an abusive father. Richie was the four eyes. Ben was fat and the new kids, so that was two strikes against them. And Bill, well, Bill had a terrible stutter. How they got together and became friends is contrasted with their reunion in, in 1985. And King gives us their backstory as their memories of the summer of 1958 begin to resurface over the course of the novel. Since it turns out that once each of them had left Derry during their teenage years, their memories of who they were to one another and what they did became more and more clouded. The trip back to Derry and various encounters with the evil they simply referred to as it brings back those memories and gives them a sense of purpose. You see, what happened in 1958 was that the losers originally became friends because they were more or less targets of Derry's resident bully, Henry Bowers, and his little gang of, of, of thug friends. But Bowers is kind of like that he's really more of a psychopath than he is a bully. He'll He'll take things way too far to the point where... When he, when he goes after Ben Hanscom, he actually starts carving his name into Ben's fat stomach with a knife. And, you know, there, there's a rock fight with those bullies and things. It's, it's very kind of typical for kids versus the bully, you know, that sort of story. But as they get to know each other, uh, they all mention that they actually have encountered it, Pennywise, whatever we would like to call him, in some form or another. Ben saw him as the mummy, 
Eddie saw him as a leper. Bill saw him as George. Richie saw him as a werewolf. Stan saw its victims. And Beverly experienced it when she heard voices coming from uh, her bathroom sink, and Mike saw it as a flesh-eating bird. They all realize that they've all seen the same thing in a different form, and this is what is responsible for several children who have disappeared over you know, the past oh, few months or so, including Georgie, who was recovered and was dead. It's then when things do get serious. The kids have this kind of clubhouse they build, and Ben does some research into kind of Native American rituals and realizes that you can kind of go on this vision, I don't know if to call it a vision quest or what, but basically, you know, creates like a sweat lodge or a smoke, uh, a smoke hole. And uh, Bill has this vision of, of, of the ancient, ancient time when, when it literally comes to Earth as this sort of amorphous light, and, and that it has been feeding on that spot, which is now Derry, Maine, for, for centuries, millennia, perhaps. And it seems to cycle every 27, 28 years, give or take, that it, that it takes what it needs and, and then feeds off the children and feeds off the innocents and, and takes, amplifies what horror there is, natural horror there is in town and has caused, seems to be at the center of many, many things, which is something that Mike Hanlon is researching in the present day the core sort of secret history of Derry and all these disasters that have happened on kind of on this cycle and that Pennywise somehow is in there and it is pure evil and they decide that they have to stop it uh, first they go into it in this abandoned house that Eddie and, and, and Richie and a couple of them had, had known that it was spotted where it was spotted and uh, they come up with the idea of like using silver or slugs they, they boil down a couple of silver dollars uh, into little silver beads that they use uh, Bevy uses with a slingshot uh, because silver bullet kill a werewolf you know like in the movies it works to a certain extent they hurt it they don't kill it they actually barely escape the house of their lives they then realize that they have to go into the sewers and confront this thing and they eventually do being chased in there by Henry Bowers who has now basically been possessed by it it's or or is essentially the Renfield to its Dracula by that point. Now in 1985, after uh, Mike realizes to come back, he calls all the group and Stan actually kills himself because I guess the memories just come back and he cannot, cannot face it. But the rest of them do get together in Derry and as they're in Derry, their memories of that summer start to come back and in that they've kind of, they kind of reestablish the bond that they had and eventually realize that Yes, they did not kill it like they thought they did. They have to do that now. Now, my synopsis is kind of ending here, and it, and it's kind of cursory for a novel of this size, but in all honesty, I'm trying not to spoil it too much because I don't know how many people of the maybe five people who listen to this podcast have read it. Anyway, like I said, it's, it's cursory. I don't want to spoil it, and I really, really want people to go out uh, to their local library, to their bookstore, uh, go on Amazon, wherever, pick it up, read it. It, it is king at some of his monstrous best. Uh, Pennywise is a scary villain, and he's used effectively because if you search through the entire novel, he really actually doesn't show up as much as you think. 
Um, sure, he's the most familiar personification of the evil that is it. But as the novel goes on, it becomes increasingly apparent that it is all throughout Derry, the town, and it's much bigger than this scary clown he's come up with to, to start us off with. And that's because Derry, by the way, is a character in its own right. While King is telling the story of the losers in, in 58 and 85, he has several interludes that are narrated by Mike Hanlon. Like I said, he's going through his journal, and he's giving us kind of the secret history of Derry. Talks with old people in the town, people who have been around for years and years and years, and, and know of the strange things that are going on and aren't afraid to talk about it. For instance, the explosion of the local ironworks, a brutal murder that took place at a bar, his family's history in the town, and how it intersects with the town, bullies uh, Henry Bowers, because apparently... Bowers' hatred for Mike Hanlon goes back way past uh, Mike to his father because his his father blames him for the fact that his farm failed and, and all this other stuff. And it, it's very much this sort of secrets of a small town piece that that really, really draws you in. You, you want to know more about what are going on with all these people, even if they're not central to the core plot of the book. And in all this it is present. People notice that there's a clown dancing around here, there's something here, there's a big bird, or something demonic. But I never got the feeling that it was the cause of all of Derry's problems. It was just that it exacerbated what was there. It took advantage of the of the negativity. It took advantage of of the horror of the problems and and and, and fed off of that. And, and that's what I really, really liked about the book uh, this time around. Because it's perfect. It's perfect for a novel that is about the horror, horror of childhood in a small town. Each of these characters, the kids, seems real. And then as adults, they seem real because they face real-world terrors. And King spends just about as much time on those as he does on the clown, on the murders, on all the horror elements. Uh, you really do feel for each of them. And uh, their problems, you know, they feel real. King really makes you root for them. You want them to win. And you want them to succeed. You, you, feel, for, you feel for Stan when he dies. You feel for Bevy when she's, when she's abused by her father. Or Bill, as he's trying to overcome, you know, trying to get his parents to notice him because they've been gone, gone so just blank ever since his brother died. And paralleling the two years... 1958-1985 gives them more depth and it saves the novel from falling into the trap of having a great first half followed by an ultimately disappointing second half because while the adult versions of these characters are well written it really is the kids who stand out now one of the biggest criticisms I've always had of Stephen King is that he cannot write an ending and to an extent I think it's true because there are times when I've read his books and he seems like he's kind of written himself into a corner and then does something really stupid to get himself out. But without reading, revealing too much, I've had to say that I, when I reached the end of It, I felt satisfied. That's not how I felt 20 years ago, though. I think at the time, having read the book after watching the movie first, I think I expected more of Pennywise, maybe. Um, but in all honesty, I probably wasn't as ready for how abstract King does get toward the end of the story. Now that I've read multiple comic books where people are basically fighting red skies and white walls of antimatter, the idea that evil is not something that is existing in a physical form, yet it is more of an idea that might take a physical shape, makes more sense to me. So I wasn't as 
unsatisfied with the last 100 pages or so as I was when I was 14 years old. And the reread, you know, having that more sophisticated, mature eye, let's not take the maturity too seriously, come on. Um, I see that he, he really does take the time to build his confrontation in both years. And keeping that parallel structure all the way to the end of the book leads to a satisfying climax for the kids, for the adults, and for the town itself. You know, I walked away from my reading this book remembering a lot more and even feeling a lot more disturbed (laughs) at some times, um, more so than when I was in the summer of eighth grade. And yeah, it still kind of felt like an accomplishment, even though I had read it before. So as for the movie, well, I will get to my rewatch of that movie after I take a break. Just who the hell are you? He's James T. Kirk. Don't you read history? What did you say your name was? Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the USS Enterprise. Which one of you is the captain? We violate the treaty, Captain. Red alert! All hands, battle station! This is Captain Kirk. Incorrect. Can we just get down to it, please? Prepare to attack. All hands battle station. Mondays, available the second Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hello, boys and girls. It's your dear old Uncle Joker. We've got an internet access here in Arkham, so I'm doing a little browsing. Hmm, low cats. Low cats, porn, low cats. What's this? Bailey's Batman Podcast, a bi weekly podcast devoted to everything Dark Knight Detective. Well, Michael Bailey, where's Bailey's Joker Podcast, eh? We'll see about that. Harley, get our things. We're going to Georgia. <laughs> hey 
Hey everyone, Michael Bailey here asking you to check out my bi-weekly internet radio show, Bailey's Batman Podcast, or at least I'm asking you to check it out while you still can until the Joker shows up on my doorstep. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a hodgepodge-type show where I discuss all aspects of the Dark Knight's history. Comics, movies, animation, even trading cards and action figures. Everything Batman-related is fair game, and yes, that does include the villains, which includes the Joker, so he won't kill me. New episodes drop every other Tuesday over at www.baileysbatmanpodcast.com. The site also has links to the iTunes page, the RSS feed, my Twitter handle if you're into the social media thing, and the Bailey's Batman Podcast Facebook page. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Connection, which you can find at batmanpodcastconnection.wordpress.com. I really hope that's the UPS guy. Why can't I have Batman in my basement? Now, uh, it was adapted rather famously into a 1990 TV movie. Uh, the director was Tommy Lee Wallace, who studied under John Carpenter in the late 70s, and whose no- most notable credits to date uh, were Fright Night Part 2, which I haven't seen and have been meaning to watch since I love Fright Night and heard great things about Fright Night Part 2 when uh, the two true freaks did their Fright Night special. Oh, that's about a year ago, I think now. Um, and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, a movie I did watch uh, when it was aired numerous times on WPIX when I was a kid, probably around the time I was in junior high, and don't remember much about I just remember it being incredibly boring. Anyway, um, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty sure it has its fans, but 
the best way I can describe that one is forgettable. Anyway, in 1990, Wallace was given the opportunity to adapt King's novel for the small screen and was one of the co-writers of the screenplay as well as the director. He also had a pretty solid cast of both child actors and adults to play the novel's characters. Jonathan Brandis, who would be a bit of a teen heartthrob in the early 90s, and I remember best from Sequest DSV, played young Bill. Seth Green played uh, young Richie. The other kid actors really haven't shown up in much else. Uh, I recognize the kid who played Ben as Doug Porter, who was one of Kevin Arnold's classmates on a few seasons of The Wonder Years. And Emily Perkins, who played young Beverly, has shown up in movies like She's the Man and Juno and uh, has uh, had a recurring role on Supernatural here and there. The adult cast, on the other hand, is quite well known. Uh, Leading the pack is Richard Thomas who plays Bill. Uh, Thomas, if you're familiar with television in the late 1970s, is most famous for playing John Boy Walton on The Waltons, a show I've never actually watched. But uh, I really did like his portrayal of Paul Balmer in the television, the 1979 television movie version of All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, which also had uh, Ernest Borgnine as Kaczynski, Donald Pleasance as Kantarek, and Ian Holm as Himmelstoss. Uh, and it's actually... Uh, pretty good, pretty good ap- adaptation. A lot better than that nineteen or something, nineteen thirty or so uh, film that was in black and white that did West win Best Picture back then. But I've never actually been able to get through. Um, anyway, uh, that's another podcast for another day. Uh, Olivia Hussey plays Bill's wife Audra, and anyone who has ever been a freshman in high school in the United States will remember her from the rite of passage known as seeing her boob in English class when she played Juliet in the Franco Zeffirelli version of Romeo and Juliet. A play, by the way, that I absolutely loathe for reasons I won't get into, except to say, you know, check a freaking pulse, all right? Moving on, John Ritter plays Ben, Harry Anderson, who at the time was still on Night Court, plays Richie. Tim Reed, also known as Venus Flytrap, one of my favorite sitcoms of all time, WKRP in Cincinnati, plays Mike. Richard Mazur, who at that point I recognize as the dad in License to Drive, which is not a bad movie when you think about it. I mean, it's it's a Corey movie from the 80s, but it actually has its moments. Uh, he plays Stan. Dennis Christopher, whose other big movies include Breaking Away, but whom I don't really recognize, plays Eddie. And Bev is played by Lana Lang, Annette O'Toole. So it's essentially an all-star cast, but the breakout character Pennywise is played by Tim Curry, who at that point I'd only recognized from Annie, because I hadn't seen Rocky Horror yet. Uh, I would rent that in high school and then eventually see it at a late night showing in college. Uh, he's good, by the way. And uh, in fact, he pretty much carries the entire th- movie because he is the thing that you will walk away from remembering the most. I'll get to that. The movie, while doing its best, is is quite different from it, but and definitely inferior to the novel. And anyone who's read the book will recognize it almost right away, because uh, the parallels of Georgie Denborough's death in 1958 and Adrian Mellon, who is the gay man who's thrown off the uh, bridge in 1984-85, uh, it's not there at the beginning. In fact, um, there's a lot of different things in the story structure of the film that deviate from the story structure of the novel. Uh, We open the film instead with a young girl riding her tricycle outside of her house in Derry, Maine. Her mom notices that it's about to rain and he calls her in. She calls her in. The little girl pulls into the backyard and takes a look between the sheets hanging on the clothesline outside where for a split second she thinks she sees a smiling clown and so do we. She looks back. There's nothing there. Then the sheets separate again. She sees the clown but this time it has a sneer on its face. 
A few moments later, her mother comes back out to the backyard. She sees the tricycle tipped over, looks off screen, and then screams in horror. Now, Mike Hanlon, who is Derry's librarian, shows up at the crime scene. He looks concerned. The cops tell him to buzz off. But then, near a tree, he sees a photograph. It's that of Georgie. Clearly, it has returned. And he proceeds to spend all of part one of this two-part TV movie. It was aired over two nights in, uh, in November of, of 1990. Uh, she spends part one of this movie calling all the various members of the Losers Club, or as they kind of refer to themselves through most of this movie, the Lucky Seven. Uh, he tells each of them that it has come back. And uh, basically, the way this first half of the film is structured, we see the, each of the older characters react to Mike's phone call because it brings up memories like that, and we flash back to the summer when they were about 12 years old. We see Georgie's death. The group of friends come together after being chased and bullied by Henry Bowers and his gang. They then reveal to one another they've seen, they've all seen it, and eventually decide that they have to kill it and head into the sewers beneath Derry armed with slingshot and large silver earrings, because after all, silver bullets kill monsters. The movie switches things around, so a little uh, getting to Pennywise's first defeat by the time we're done with part one, and then ending that first part with Stan's suicide, which actually came up quite early in the novel. Part two has the group get together in the present day. They have a reunion uh, at a Chinese restaurant, and their fortune cookies, much like in the book, kind of come alive in some way or another. Uh, one winds, winds up actually having an eye in it. One sprouts, I believe, a cockroach. One grows spider legs, and eventually they... You know, they, they flee the restaurant, and they, they work their way toward a, toward this final confrontation with, with it. Uh, I'm not going to get really in-depth with my synopsis here, partially because, like with the novel, I don't want to spoil too much, uh, but also because if I go through the movie bit by bit, all I'm going to be doing is going, okay, this wasn't in the novel, this wasn't in the novel, this is different, this is different, this is different. And I really don't want to get into some sort of bad compare-contrast essay here, you know? Although, I have to say, it's kind of funny that I'm doing that because, or not doing that, because the first time I read the book, I did that where I was like, oh wait, this is, this is different than the movie, this is different than the movie, this is different than the movie. And I think you tend to do that when you read books that movies were based on. I remember doing that with Jaws um, and, and a couple others here and there. I think you're just naturally inclined to do that. But I, I do want to mention, you know, in, in talking about this movie, reviewing it for a little bit, uh, what I did notice as I was taking notes while watching the film because, you know, you take one film class in college, you think you're a critic, right? <laughs> and I did. I seriously sat there and, and watched it on my computer and, and took notes as, I, uh, as if I was going to write a paper on it or something. First, the one thing that does stand out aside from Tim Curry is the performance of the child actors. Now, I didn't watch the movie with the commentary track on. Uh, there, there, is, there is a commentary track, I believe, the d- director and some of the actors. But, you know, it took me long enough to get through all three hours of this movie. I didn't really feel like going back and watching it again. Uh, some of the commentary tidbits do pop up on the Internet Movie Database's trivia section. A couple of interesting things. Um, mostly the director saying, you know, the budget they had to work with, certain scenes that they liked and did not like. Um, how the ending actually he kind of wanted it to be better because you know he wasn't that satisfied with it but you know they only had so much money and time to work with stuff 
when I'm looking at this movie and I'm looking at you know the, the flashback scenes versus the adult scenes, I have to imagine that with the flashback scenes, those in charge of the production were taking their cues from a movie, movie like Stand By Me, which is one of the better adaptations of King's work. Um, up until the fight with Pennywise in the sewers, the portion of the movie about their childhood does its best to follow the novel. There are a few differences, but they don't detract too much from my overall enjoyment of this portion, because the actors, like I said, they're really good. And the whole kids fight the monster aspect, it was incredibly intriguing. Uh, much more than the parts of the film featuring the adult actors. Uh, it's not to say that the adult cast doesn't do a good job. I mean, they clearly are enjoying being in this movie. But the part with the kids, which is most of part one, it seems more crafted. The adult portion seems way too much like television movies at the, from the time. Uh, the the score the score doesn't do it any justice either. There's just you know when you're when you're back and forth between these things and you see the modern day stuff, it, it looks like something that we'd be watching on Lifetime in a few years. You know, just without you know, but the stuff on Lifetime doesn't really have like you know blood and and killer clowns, but, you know, it, it has this sort of TV movie feel to it, whereas the stuff in the back really, the flashbacks really does, it feels a little more, more like a film. And in all honesty, the adult stuff does veer into cheesy and even schlocky territory, especially during part two. I'll give them credit for stuff like making the fortune cookies come to life, um, Stan slitting his wrists and writing it in his own blood on the shower wall, uh, brilliantly done. And, and even even creepy, uh, which is which is what King was going for in in the novel as well, um, and it's those but those are the only few portions that really match the creepiness that you get with the parts with the kids, because there's there's a moment when you're watching this movie, uh, especially during during the adult scenes when you when you realize that, you know you're in part two, you've really liked part one, but then we hit a moment and you're like ah shit we've turned a corner. And and uh, we're not coming back. And it, it's somewhere in the last 20 minutes or so. Um, an adult Henry Bowers, who after chasing the kids into the sewers back in the in the when they were 12 years old, saw what what they refer to in the novel and the movie as the deadlights of it. They kind of looked into this demon thing's eyes, and it, it turned his hair completely white and it drove him insane. And he ended up actually confessing to all these murders, and they locked him up in a, in a mental ward. Um, Pennywise comes to him and basically says, I need you to kill these people because I can't really do it. Something about them not fully believing means that I can't kill them. I can torture them, and that's basically what he's been trying to do, trying to drive them away. But I can't I can't do what I want, so I'm gonna have you do a you're gonna be my proxy. Uh, he busts him out and and Henry attacks Mike. Hanlon stabs him, Mike ends up in the hospital. And at that point, all of the rest of the, the leftover gang is like, you know, we're splitting. I, I'm not doing this. Um, Bill is the only one who, who wants who wants to see this through, and he gives this motivational speech just as they're all getting into their cars. And he reminds them of Georgie, and he says, you know, if I don't do this, it's going to drive me insane for the rest of my life. And he gives that speech, and then they all get around and hug him. Seriously freaking group hug in the middle of this movie and it's just like oh you know i just i i was watching that last night and i was just like oh. and it's one of several moments of togetherness among these adults that seems 
awkward or cheesy. You know, the holding hands, hugging, and 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 you get that way with your friends when when you get together and you haven't seen them for a while. But not it, this is just it's it's forced. It's it's weird um, and off-putting. Uh, and and I think part of that actually has to do with and part of a lot of the 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 downside of kind of the adult stuff. Part of it has to do with the fact that the film's too short. Uh, had this been a classic miniseries from that era that was maybe four, five, six hours long, stretched over three nights, maybe even four, uh, the filmmakers could have spent more time on exposition. They could have spent more time on setup. We'd have seen way more of the kids, gotten even more of an idea how close their bond was. Not only that, we could have gotten a better idea of how difficult it was for the adult versions of these characters to reestablish it. Uh, King's having the story in 58 parallel the story in 85, right up to near the end of the novel, like I said, really saves it from the two towers effect, you know, where you've got a great first half of the book, and then the second half of the book is a slog. We're walking Tom Bordor. Plus, um, what I will say about the ending of that book is that King established very well that when the Losers Clubs defeats it in 58, they wind up tapping into something that was much larger than they were, something that was mystical, otherworldly. So the fact that their memories came and went, and that they felt that was some sort of fate was pulling them into this fight to fight it again, um, it, gave, it gave the whole thing a sense of, I don't want to say mythology, I don't know if that's the right word, but there's something much deeper... And the movie tries to touch on that. They try to touch on the whole Derry is haunted thing. But it's almost like they only pay lip service to it. They really can't get it across. I don't know if that's due to the fact that there were limitations on the time frame, the budget, being on network television. Because, um, in all honesty, what we wind up getting in the end is a shitty monster movie. And it's a little bit disappointing. Now, I've read that a new version of this is actually in development. Uh, that's going, and, and the plan is to make it into two movies. Um, I'm curious as to how this will work out as an R-rated feature film. I think it'll be a lot better. The only downside to it is uh, I'd be curious as to who's playing Pennywise, because in all honesty, I give the filmmakers credit here because they knew what they had and they just did their best to exploit it because they made a lot of the fight about Pennywise, whereas in the novel he's there, but it doesn't feel like he's always popping up in the same way he's always popping up in the movie. Tim Curry's performance carries this, like I said. Uh, he employs this almost like vaudevillian, old-timey actor's voice with that slightly New York accent, like, hey, buddy, you know, um, like a, almost like an evil Jimmy Durante or Burgess Meredith or somebody. And it makes it fl- frightening when he flips that switch from, here's a balloon, kid, to... They all float down here, and where you'll, f- when you're down here, you'll float too. And now I'm going to rip out your soul. Uh, it's pretty difficult to do this when you consider that this is a character that, in the ages, is sort of wisecracking Freddy Krueger, Jack Nicholson's Joker. You know those types of characters. Um, it could have been scenery chewing. It could have been over the top. It could have been really, really cheesy, even campy. And we know Tim Curry can do campy, <laughs> but he doesn't. He dials down the Frankenfurter. He really, really, really makes you hate clowns forever. Which, by the way, I do. <laughs> Granted, I never really liked clowns as a kid. I've been to the circus all of once, but between the Tim Curry as Pennywise and uh, that toy clown in Poltergeist, I don't want clowns anywhere near me. <laughs> and I don't want to say this is true for my entire generation, but I think this movie definitely made its mark, because I remember most of my friends saw it, and we all agreed that the first part was scarier than the second. And I can see that it's one of those horror films that you know, 
it, it kind of falls into the trap that a lot of horror and comedy films fall into of that time where you've got a lot of jokes and a lot of scares and you want people to remember them but when you have to actually get to the plot things don't really hold up um shit my my sister even watched this and she's a couple years younger than me so she was about maybe nine or ten when she first saw this and i remember at one point um she took this stock photo of a little girl and and put it into like whatever program she had that wasn't Photoshop, but it was kind of like Photoshop, and she put, like, fangs and blood and demon eyes on it, and she wrote, like, you know, we all float down here, you'll float too. And she printed it out and put it on her closet wall, because, you know, she's sick. But <laughs> it was always kind of fun to look at. I think she was just bored with it, bored and, and just screwing around the computer. But in all honesty, you know, again, it's like, people remembered this. Now, I don't think it's something that's been watched over and over and over again over the last 20 years because it has, like, one DVD release, which was, you know, an alright DVD, bare bones, with a commentary DVD release, and and it's kind of never heard from again, but people remember Curry as Pennywise, and people remember different aspects of this movie. Anyway, I would recommend it. I would recommend seeing it, just like I would recommend going to your library, because support your local library, and getting out this book. Um, you could probably get it on, on Kindle. I actually checked the book out on Kindle. And uh, I know I've spent the last half of this episode kind of shitting all over the movie, but see the movie. Uh, in the very least, for Tim Curry and for those flashback bits, uh, don't see the movie in lieu of reading the book. I think that if you do that, you miss a lot of what was really good about what King wrote uh, because it's, it's such a dense, dense book. That, that really deserves um, really deserves a couple of people reading. But both of these are worth it to varying degrees. And uh, they, made, they made for a fun October, a fun Halloween. And that's it for this month. Um, I'll eventually come up with an end tag here, so I don't have to say this over and over every time from scratch. But you can check out show notes, some graphics, some videos at the website, which is popcultureaffidavit.com. The blog will also be updated a couple of times between now and the end of the next month. If you want to hear me talk about Batman, Robin, Nightwing, you can go down to Taking Flight over at takingflight.podomatic.com. As of this recording, I just covered the death of Jason Todd, and we'll soon be looking at year three in A Lonely Place of Dying. If you want to give me feedback, you can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And uh, please, please, go to iTunes go to Amazon, go to cityoftreason.com check out City of Treason, whose music you heard at the beginning and end of this episode download a song or two, download the EP, Uh, they're a great band if you download some of this stuff, you'll be supporting a very close friend of mine, and uh, I'll be back in a month with a look at something else random in popular culture, so until then my name is Tom Panners, and thank you for listening yeah